0: Welcome back to the Segmentus Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Monday, February 28th, the day after Opening Weekend, which we call Opening Weekend because it's the first of the well, the semi-classics, the the first of the cobbled, gnarly Belgian early season races. The preseason is done. The real season is here, and so we're going to be talking through. Omloop at Newsblood, we're going to be talking through Kern, Russell's Kern. We've got Omloop Hageland, a bit of the UAE Tour, the Esports World Championships. That's a new one for us. And in today's Nerd Nugget, a new Cervello hiding in plain sight. On the show today, Abby Mickey, how are you?
1: <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that question. I mean,
0: well, Right before we hit record, there was a tiny a tiny human trying to escape out of your ribcage. So that, that seems true. less than ideal.
1: Yeah. yeah. The physically physically I'm, you know, getting by. Uh mentally, <laughs> <laughs> mentally, not all there. Emotionally, j walked away Thursday on Thursday and it has not come back. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> Well, we hope that you and pull it all together for today's podcast. For yeah, the podcast, me too. That's uh, yeah, just, yeah. Just for we just need you for an hour. We just need you for an hour. Ronan, how are you today? Uh, I'm probably about a three and a
2: half out of ten, four maybe. <laughs> R- Ronan was in the hospital over the weekend or had something. Just this morning, I interrupted my hospital appointment to bring you
0: this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> You've got you've your leg your leg's not doing so hot, right? Uh,
2: no, it's got a slight infection in it, but uh, it's the swelling and ping on my patellar tendon that's the main issue. It's nothing to worry about. Antibiotics are working for me, so on the mend. All right, good to hear, James.
0: Uh, I think you and I are doing considerably better than these two, right? I, I mean, <laughs> I I burned the roof of my
3: mouth yesterday on something I ate for dinner, but aside from that, I mean, I, I would say generally speaking, in the global state of the world the bar is set pretty low right now so <laughs> really don't have a whole
0: lot to complain about we are doing we're doing all right you and i uh, our colleagues highly questionable but let's get into today's episode like i said opening weekend last weekend we've got a heck of a lot to talk about i think we're going to start with Omlopet newsblad right is that that's the first thing on the run sheet here uh, oh somebody Somebody on the Velo VeloClub Slack like asked me to stop using the word run sheet. I don't know why. What word should I use instead? Show notes. Show notes? Well, I guess it's th- the same thing. I'm going to call it a run sheet. Sorry. Sorry, VeloClubber. I'm going to continue to call it a run sheet. First thing on the run sheet here, Omloop Head Newsblad. We've got, got quite a few interesting things going on at Omloop. But first and foremost, Abby, what happened? Who won the bike race?
1: Yeah. Um it was a pretty aggressive race. I mean, it's the first race, like you said, that we have cobbles and there's climbs, uh, those, you know, punchy climbs. that are very well known in the Flanders region. And there was a couple notable moves that went one of the most notable being a move with wow, van art and, uh, Tish his new Jumbo Visma teammate, and also the two Ineos riders, Pidcock and Neveas, And, That move was pretty notable in that there was some teams that missed it, Quickstep and Trek being two of them. But instead of them kind of working together, there was this really interesting moment when Banut attacked that group, which then caused that group to neutralize a little bit and get swallowed up by the Peloton. And then the whole race to kind of reset. And this was still... It was far enough, far enough into the race that, you know, we were watching it and close enough, far enough from the finish that it was, there was still a lot of space to go. But when the race did eventually reshuffle and a new group emerged out of the front, um, while Van Aert was still in it and instead of sitting in and hanging out and beating all of the guys in that group in a sprint, which I think the only person he really had to contend with was Cabrelli at that point. He he went solo. He was like, no, yeah, I'll just time trial to the finish. <laughs> and uh, and he won. He won solo.
0: Okay. Many, many things to discuss here. But I, the first one, I think, is the fact that both Watt-Lenart, uh and Pidcock and a couple others, they kind of lied to us ahead of this bicycle race. <laughs> They t- told us they told us that they were not on form Wow, there was a quote in, in Belgian media from from Wout saying that he would had recently come back from altitude and he was just not ready to go. And it was his first race of the year. If that is if that is Wout van Aert uh, not at 100 percent, you have to imagine that the rest of the field is somewhat concerned at this point in time, right?
1: Well, maybe he 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 didn't feel confident going to the line with the group and sprinting for the win does not answer how he was able to ride away from everybody and <laughs> time trial to the finish. But you know, it maybe the, the percentage he's missing is that kick. And that's why he pulled the move that he did.
2: I think the only logical conclusion is that Van Art may only be at 90%, but everybody else must be at 50% if that's the case <laughs> with the way he just, you know, rode away, had only three seconds at the top of the Bosberg and only extended that advantage.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a, Pretty incredible ride. Now we have talked about the Omloop curse numerous times. This feels like maybe the year where that could be reversed. Uh, the Omloop curse, of course, being that you you can't really win Omloop and Flanders Roubaix in the same year. They're they're too far apart. Uh, but in, if this is if this is well, just coming off a training camp, you know, no racing in his legs yet, and still able to do that, it it feels like he suddenly and quite uh quite strongly becomes the man to beat for the next two months, basically. Uh let's talk a little bit about the 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 teams that would like to do that. I was I was intrigued by Ineos and in particularly intrigued by the sort of duo of Pitcock and Nervaez. Uh you know, Ineos is kind of known historically as you know all the way back through Team Sky. It's not really that good of a classics team, but part of that was they never really sort of built a team around these races right uh you know they had ian standard who, who of course did his his crazy beating all three quick steppers uh in a, in a single finale but, and they had a couple sort of one-offs like that but they were never really they were never really a factor throughout most of the springs over the last decade or so and with those two riders with Narvaez and pickock it, it certainly looks like they're going to be a factor this spring
2: yes yeah, certain like both those riders, we've seen them in that front move with Benut and Uh, with van Aert coming into. I think it was just coming into Mervin Gerritsbergen where Benut eventually made his move coming coming into the climb. And I think that uh, you know, the 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 partnership there. They're obviously two very strong riders in you know good condition already. So early in the season, which is you know even more impressive for Pidcock, who's just come off the back of his cyclocross season, cyclocross world championships, and is already. In such strong form, like when when those four riders, initially broke clear together, I think it was on the, was it on the Taenberg. I think it was the the Tom Boonen climb, as it, as it's previously known. Uh, it was like there were there was literally just nobody could match their acceleration. Those four riders, the the four of them seemed very equally matched, but nobody else in the peloton could could match them. Uh, and they they you know quickly built up an advantage, but then I think where, you know, where any else, you know. They have the the strong riders, but where they might struggle this spring again is just the sort of relative youth and and, and experience within the team uh, and although that you know will obviously be a good thing longer term uh i think it padcock himself has admitted since since the on that they did make a few mistakes obviously one of those was letting teaspoon get clear which then put you know any us on the um defensive or offensive or whatever way you want to look at it they had the chase whereas white vanard didn't uh and you know, when you look at their whole team, the average age for the team this weekend was I think twenty two and a half years of age, uh, which was, you know, considering that Ben Swift is thirty-four, uh, and he was by far the oldest in the team.
0: So the rest of them are thirteen is what you're saying.
2: <laughs> the rest <laughs> of them are very, very young. Uh, and that that is obviously a good thing longer term, but I think the point I'm making is just, you know, the, it might not be this year, but certainly any of us probably have big things to look forward to to in the classics. And and feeding into the fact that it might not be this year is just the fact that Jumbo-Visma do appear to be so good this season. You know, beyond just the two-star riders there, they they have a, they have strength and depth as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, Pitcock just seemed to be a little bit uh, impatient. Uh, and, and that certainly, we, we often tie that to youth, right? To to just sort of not having done a lot of these races many times. Whereas Walfner very much waited for his moment on Saturday. You did mention the fact that, that jumbo they they really took control of this race and that that feels a bit new actually i mean it felt a bit quickstep like in fact quickstep had a bad day on saturday so let's let's talk about both those things one what happened to quickstep on saturday and two is yumbo now sort of filling filling that team's role of kind of grabbing hold of a race and 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 fully taking control of it
2: i think you know quickstep in terms of results they definitely had a bad day on on saturday and, you know, on, on the face of it, that appears to be a disaster. And, you know, Lefervre made a few comments that they've, you know, it really woke them up or shook them up or something to that effect. Um, But I think, you know, thinking back to when I was watching the race on Saturday, both Casper Asgreen and, and Yves Lamper, Lamper, who are their two main riders for the envelope, had mechanicals at maybe not key moments within the race, but definitely at moments that put them at a disadvantage for the key moments uh, of the race. And, and I think that's, we can't really underestimate how much of an impact that would have had on on the whole team's performance on, on Saturday. Asgreen had two mechanicals of some nature. I'm not sure if there were punctures or what. The cameras didn't really catch it, but he had a, a mechanical issue, had the chase back on, and then immediately had a second mechanical. And Eve Lampard also had a mechanical or, or a puncture. I think he had at a at a bad moment.
0: And Asgreen is, is returning from COVID too. He, re- he had a positive COVID test on February 8th, I believe, which is not that long ago uh 20 days ago and well Abby you're our resident covid expert uh <laughs> Why? It, can, it can it can take a while to come back from i i I shouldn't joke about that but Abby's on her third how many times have you had it third no. third third bout with covid um but you're okay you're doing fine so i don't think it's too too surprising even if Asgreen is is totally recovered he still probably missed some time. At the very least, he probably had some cold symptoms and wasn't feeling so well for a little while, missed some time in the run-up to this race, and, uh, well, yeah, the preparation took a bit of a hit. So that combined with, with some mechanicals at inopportune moments, not super surprising that he had a bad day, but it was still just sort of a, a generally lackadaisical performance from Quick-Step. I mean... Like, usually we see from that team, even if the, the leaders have an issue, their, their depth is what gives that team its strength, right? Is the fact that rider number six is better than rider number six at almost any other team in these particular races. And it didn't look like that on Saturday. It, it just, they just, they just weren't really there. I mean, you just didn't really see them in any of the key moments. Uh, and that's, a, that's an unusual thing for them.
1: They were, it was interesting that before the race even started, LeFavre um had this quote that was like, we never do well at opening weekend. Like he was writing it off before the day even started to with their two top riders out. It was Florian Seneschel that they were riding for. And
0: yeah, I, I mean, just, just to, just to fact check Patrick Lefevre for, for a quick moment. Um, the, the, the notion that they don't usually do well in opening weekend is absolute nonsense uh they won last year they were second the year before uh they won the year before that <laughs> they, they haven't they literally have not been first or second in four or five years <laughs> at, at umloop so yeah he's he's full of it second uh, second is a disaster though for question is a disaster
1: he set them up for failure
0: he did he did that's just a really funny thing to say that they don't usually do well at at opening weekend when uh well we'll get to kern in in a a second but they won on sunday uh and they have yeah won or been second place or at the very least been on the podium basically every year all the way back to i don't don't have the results in front of me a very long time (laughs) a very very long time so he's full of it anyway let's move on from from quick step i do think that they'll be able to turn that around you know like Ronan said, they had mechanicals. Uh, they have they have some COVID that they're coming back from. Really briefly on the mechanical question, though, Ronan, they, we do think that they're running different tires and wheels now than they were this time last year, right?
2: Yeah, it's certainly all but confirmed that they are riding a, at least a tubeless, at least a new tubeless tire uh, and presumably, a let's say, a tubeless version of the Roval Rapide CLX wheels. Um, which have been around for a couple of seasons, were launched at the same time as the Tarmac SL7, if I remember right, but were famously clincher until now. And Quickstep themselves suffered numerous punctures in prior Roubaix last season. Um, on clinchers. On clinchers, yeah. The, the, and, the least surprising thing to have ever happened. Well, especially on a wet Roubaix, but any Roubaix, really. It's uh, A friend of mine is going to ride the Challenger Bay this year, and I've been uh, trying to tell him he needs to find a different solution than the clincher tires that he currently has <laughs> is, is
3: is he at least running something wider than like 25s
2: he, he reckons he can get 28s um. but even even that i had 28s for our Arenberg forest detour last year and it just takes the fun out of it you're either you know afraid of puncture or afraid of falling but you're not having fun either way <laughs> <laughs> put some 40s
0: on there honestly <laughs> Yeah, so they're they're on something new. Uh, I, I, it's I always find you know if if they are on a new a new tire wheel setup and they had some issues this week. I mean we know that bike racers are pretty uh, superstitious and I and I hope that they sort of get past that and and keep belief in whatever they're they're running because frankly punctures happen. Uh, it would be interesting to see what they move to or if they move off of what they were on today or on, on Saturday where they change it up throughout the rest of the of the spring.
2: It looks like they're this. The Quick Step, Bora, Hansgrohe, and Team Total Energies, who all ride Roval wheels, were all riding this new tubeless tire over the weekend. Uh, and although we reported on the wheels and the tires a couple of weeks back at this stage, what we did find out over the weekend from some sort of closer up still shots was that the, the new REM actually has a tire pressure rating on it for 110 psi, So it's tubeless, compatible, and it's not hookless uh, was, I think, the good news to come into this weekend because <laughs> we
0: don't really like hookless. Let's get back onto the actual, the actual bike race here. I, I have to say that Teach Binout is, is looking like quite the signing for Yumbo at this point in time, which like I said, you know, Wout has, has obviously found plenty of success over the last couple of years, but often did it without much of a sort of dedicated classics team, uh, where, you know, somebody that, that of the level of Binout who, who could, well, go off the front at key moments and, and create the kind of dynamic that we saw on Saturday, it's certainly looking like that team now, like I said at the beginning of the show, like that team is now the, you know, it's the team to beat essentially this spring. They, they have the firepower and they have the star who is going to, every single time Walfner is in a bike race, he determines the way that everybody else races. And so the fact that they have somebody like Benaut makes it even sort of scarier for the rest of the teams, right?
2: Certainly, he seems to be the final piece in the Jumbo jigsaw judging by the weekend, like he was able to not only be in the front group, uh, but he was he was sort of, I think the commentator said on GCN that he was sort of riding with a renewed freedom, having not having that leadership pressure hanging over him. And, you know, he's, he certainly made the difference, I, I think, for Van Aert on, on Saturday and that having a teammate, not only a teammate in that front group, but, you know, an outside favorite, at worst, you, you could arguably consider him one of the favorites for the race. Really changed the the dynamic of the race, and you know, looking down through the, the whole team, they've got incredible strength and, and depth, really. So they have the arguably one of the strongest teams for the classics this year.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it's a it's a clever move on Bonot's part, right? Because he making he he is probably more likely to win with what Vanard and his team than without right? Because when he was the leader and he would do his Benoting and he would go off the front at, at 55k to go, most of the time you're like, okay, well, good luck. Good good luck, Benote. Uh, you're going to probably get caught with about eight kilometers remaining. And that usually happened. But what, what we've seen with Quickstep time and time and time again is that you ha- if you have a couple uh, top riders, I mean, I'm thinking back to like the Boonin era, for example, you know, Boonin's teammates Won all kinds of races because everyone was looking DeVolder. at. Volder? Yeah. The Volder is a perfect example because everybody's looking at Bonin. And so I feel if you're, if you're Tiege Binot and you're looking at the, the landscape of teams to be on and your own skill set, him going to Yumbo Visma was actually brilliant for his own personal wins, right? You would think on first glance that being on the team of Wapanari is probably not going to be a good thing. But in his case, in the way that he rides, I think that I think he could he could find some success where he might not have otherwise this year.
2: Yeah, they're effectively playing on each other. Like, let's be clear: when when Tischbennut made that attack on Saturday with twenty kilometers to go, yes, it played in Van Aert's favor. But Benut is making that attack for his own success, and and the the chance he's hoping for there is that you know the rest of the group look around, see Van Aert there, and are all willing to work together, which is what happened. Uh, mm-hmm. just it didn't work out this one time because there was such a strong peloton behind you know incredibly large group for the closing stages of it had, had the head Newsblad. and you know the the racing action that kicked off coming into garage and, and on the mirror brought him back but almost any other year the same scenario could have um, or a different scenario could have unfolded where bernut rides away and the group behind are looking at each other and all of a sudden these bernut wins uh omelet head newsblad and you know, I'm sure he's thinking or hoping something similar can happen at the Tour of Flanders and paris Bay and all the other classics coming coming up in, in the next month or so. Let's uh, let's get to the end of the race here, Ronan. The Van Aert attack just before the Bosberg that everybody else is waiting for on that fast, flat gravel road, or not gravel, concrete road that, you know, is already pretty tough. And yeah, the others looked at each other for that split second, had a bit of hesitation. And it was actually Victor Campenart's, who had an incredible race, considering how much bad luck he had, uh, made the move to try and get across to Van Aert. And and I think exactly what you said there, Kay, They just, you know, made the attack, thought he had the legs to carry it all the way to the top of the Bosberg, got oh so close to Van Aert's wheel, but just just, just started drifting back and back in the gap just started opening and opening. And yeah, he never got there. And I, I actually timed it with my phone watching the race at the top of the Bosberg because I said, you know, the gap here, the gap at the top of the Bosberg wasn't going to be, critical or crucial but the next time gap we got after that was going to be crucial was van art building his advantage or was van Aert being brought back and at the top of the bosberg i timed it he had exactly three seconds and yeah the next time we got a time gap then uh van Aert had extended his uh, lead to i think eight or nine seconds before the left turn onto the main road that brings him into Nino, where the finish was once he turned onto that main road to ninov it was a block tailwind and yeah van art with a tailwind uh on a on a you know slightly rolling but mostly again flat or downhill road he was probably hitting 60k an hour i think at one point they had 8k to go and it felt like i blinked and he had 3k to go <laughs> so he was riding just you know incredibly fast and yeah stayed away took the one solo uh, quite comfortably in the end
1: i feel like we have to talk about camping arts because he had like the worst race of the day he crashed, I think, multiple times, had a bike change at least one time. There was a point where the commentary on GCN was saying there's no way he's going to get back into this race, let alone be a factor. And then when that uh, race-winning split happened, he was in it, and then he was active in it, and it was just, like, so wild to see. And he still ended up up there in the finish. So it it was just such an impressive end of the race for him and also interesting to think about how well he rode given the extra effort he was putting in before the racing even really kicked off.
2: Yeah, I
0: think he's a rider that's kind of been pigeonholed as a time trialist for a long time because he's a very good time trialist, but just like we've seen other really good time trialists kind of make their way into into classics form. Maybe he's another one. Maybe maybe he's somebody to to really keep an eye on this spring. I mean, Cancellara is obviously sort of the most obvious rider who who combines sort of you know world world championship level time trial ability with obviously ability in the cobbled classics it doesn't always translate tony martin tried didn't do so hot in his couple attempts at paris-roubaix and such Uh, you have to be a good bike handler
1: to be able to turn to sorry no offense tony you have to (laughs) be able to like keep your bike upright to be able to sorry
0: Key skill set. Key skill set. Like Filippo Ganã is apparently going to be shooting for some of these these couple of classics this spring for Ineos, and it's always interesting to see how these. I mean, the riders that we just know have enormous engines, right? Arts has an enormous engine. Ganã has an even bigger one, probably. It's always interesting to see how they translate into these particular races, uh, and Campanarts certainly showed on Saturday that that he's probably somebody to watch over the next couple months.
1: Yeah, speaking of big engines and being able to transfer that over to the cobbles.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Abby, talk me through the women's enloop headness blood
1: Yeah, the course was really different this year. So going into it, I expected it to actually be a small group that went to the line. There was a really long gap between the third to last climb and the Mer-Kapelmere, that usually there's just a ton of climbs that back each other up. By the time they hit the Bosberg, the race has already exploded. It's like 12 riders that are still in the race. But because it was spaced out a little bit more this year, it was a pretty huge group going into the Kaplmere And there was one impressive breakaway that spent most of the day off the front that included some really notable riders, Ellen Van Dyke, Marlon Rusa, um, Anna Henderson. When they hit the the Capelmurem, it kind of came back together, and that was where Anamiek Van Vluten did her first move. She went over the top of that, and there was kind of just a string of riders behind her that are all the riders that have been at the top of their game for the last couple of years, and, uh, and some new faces like Vollering, who obviously was the the breakout star from 2021 going into the Bosberg. It was this it really interesting dynamic where you had, uh, Russa, you had volering van Vluten, and then there was a chasing group, uh, and Van Dyke. And then there was a chasing group that had Elisa Longborghini, Longorghini cash and Iwadoma is, so there was like cash was in the front group, regardless, two groups, two groups, one group of three, one group of four, whatever. And when they hit the Bosberg van Vluten, just completely imploded the group. I mean, she went so hard and for someone who is very, very little to put out that those kind of Watts over those cobbles and be able to drop very good riders was really impressive. I mean, she's the best climber in the world, so it makes sense that the road slopes upwards and she can go, but when it's cobbled, it's, it's a very different kind of effort. But she's, she just like completely blew the race apart. And the only person who could hold on was Vollering. And for the 13 or whatever kilometers to the finish, Vollering was on her wheel, looked like she was just suffering. She was pulling faces and stuff. But you'd think, oh, maybe she's faking it. But then Van Vluten out sprinted her. So she wasn't faking it. (laughs) Maybe just wasn't having a great day. 90% of the time, 94% of the time, Vollering would beat Van Vluten in a sprint but Van Vluten went for the long range sprint, led it through the two final corners into the finish and Vollering just couldn't come around her.
0: Why, why was Vollering was doing some, a little bit of pulling. Why?
1: Vollering did not pull. Vollering didn't work at all. I thought I saw
0: her do a pull near the end there.
1: She did. So I think that that this is where, this is where she made her, her mistake. I think not that it made that big of a difference. So, Van Vluten pulled the entire time from the Bosberg to it was like 800 meters to go or less before 500 meters to go somewhere around the under the final K Van Vluten turned around and was sternly speaking to Vollering about taking a pull. Vollering does not need to pull. Lodoka is in the group behind one of the best sprinters in the peloton and Volaring's. V- new teammate. So she doesn't need to do anything. That group comes back and Capecchi wins this race, like hands down. So Volering had every right to just sit on Van Vluten's wheel. Once the finish was getting closer, Volering did get in front of Van Vluten, which was very confusing because you'd, you'd think that she would want Van Vluten to lead her into the sprint. What happened next was there was a corner that Van Vluten dive bombed a rat, like inside of Vollering into the corner. So she did get a, like a little tiny bit of a gap and v- Vollering had to accelerate to get back up to Van Vluten's wheel. And then that's when Van Vluten started her 500 meter long sprint. And by that point, Vollering was already having to accelerate. So I think, I don't think it made a difference in the end, honestly, because I think that Vollering just wasn't having a great day sp- Sprinting wise, obviously she's still super strong. She was the only one who could hold on to Van Bluten's wheel, but I don't think it made a difference in that final sprint.
0: Yeah. There's a school of thought that if you are fully cracked, you're actually better off sprinting from the front, right? Cause at least then you make them come around you. You, you make them get a full bike length around you. So I kind of see maybe why she would do that. If she, if she just did what, you know, didn't trust her legs at that point in time. But obviously then you can't, you can't get dive-bombed in the corners and, and let gaps open up <laughs> right after that. That was the pull I was talking about. Just like her hitting the front at all in that last, what, 10, 12K um, was odd to me. But again, like I said, there, there is a school of thought. And I kind of subscribe to it that you may be better off sitting on the front and just hoping to hang on if, if you're fully cracked like that. If in doubt, lead it out. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> Which I think both of them kind of wanted to do that because Van Vluten also would have been like, well, there's, Volering is a very good sprinter. I'm not going to win in a sprint. So that's why she went for such a long time.
2: I think it's maybe one of the situations where Volering could have benefited from doing more work because at least when she was on the front, she could have slowed Van Vluten down. <laughs> She could have went to the front to take a turn to get a better recovery. <laughs> Obviously, she'd open up the opportunity to be attacked from you know and and not see it coming. But just the way Van Vleuten rode in those final few kilometers, it, it you know uh, we all kind of wondered was uh, volering, you know sort of playing a bit of poker or something and you know not really suffering that much. But I think she actually was just probably regretting the fact that she was able to stay with Van Vleuten. Judging by the amount she was suffering, it was yeah an incredible ride in the,
1: for me, watching watching the race, the hardest part was watching that group behind because, although I understand why no one in that group got on the front to pull Van Vluten and Volering back, it was still just really passive racing. That it's just not it's just not entertaining, right? And Capecchi was in that group, which meant that Russo. She did sit on the front and she was riding pretty hard at one point, which was like pretty weird to see um with Volering up the road. But like Rusa's not gonna actively pull Van Vluten back. Ellen Van Dyke and Elisa aren't gonna work because Kapeki's there and they can't outspring Kapeki. There's not enough road for them to get away solo, which would be either of their only way to win. Uh but we've got like Grace Brown, Kashini Wadoma are alone. So like what are they going to do? So it just ended up that because Volering was up the road with Van Vluten, that whole break that was behind them that was full of really incredible riders was completely neutralized by Kopecky sitting on the back. Which is whatever, but it just it was just very like passive aggressive for the first real cobble race of the year and they all they got brought back by the peloton anyway but but you'd still think that it, it's still it's always frustrating to like watch people race for third
0: yeah yeah and just like accept that right i mean you, you you at least want to see him try even if it puts them back into 12th right you at least exactly. want to see them go for it yeah you know?
1: and kasha actually said it on her instagram that she was disappointed in the way that she raced so hopefully that means that she'll Start of Yankee. Maybe,
2: maybe not on Saturday, but you, I usually like that sort of thing where, you know, you can, you can see the writers and the sort of train of thought that they're having that I can't work, but I don't want to lose either. And just almost being resigned to the fact that they're, it's like check, a checkmate and, you know, they, they, they can't waste their full potential because they've got either a writer up the road or they have a writer in their group. Who's not in their team that is going to out sprint them. Uh, and, yeah although it is frustrating to watch sometimes i can enjoy the actual tactical element of that and uh you know i think that was obviously a play on on saturday and uh, i can understand what you're saying i mean you know it's it's frustrating to watch in that but there is also that element of it that i quite enjoy where it's uh you know for 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 cycling fans like ourselves who you know we we you can you can spot that if you just turn on Eurosport or whatever on Saturday and you happen to see a bike race and you don't see them racing full gas, that's, you know, probably frustrating, but I I enjoy the tactical side of it.
1: I agree. And I love the tactical side of it. And it's why I like road racing in the first place. But I also think that this happens so often with Van Vluten specifically, that that's why it's frustrating because if this were to happen With another rider off the front, who's not usually off the front, it would be a little bit of a different situation, but it does often feel like, and I don't, I don't know, but just having watched a lot of women's bike racing over the years, Van Vluten will often often go off the front and get a huge gap. And the rest of the Peloton looks like they're racing for second, which is just really frustrating. So I think it would make a difference if it was ballering by herself off the front, which sucks because the VanVloon's an incredible rider and, and you want to cheer for her, but this just happens so often that at a certain point. You're just like, come on guys. <laughs> like you can pull her back. You can do it. Just like, don't race for,
0: I, I mean, I think they just resigned to their fate is the problem, right? Let's move it on. It's kind of unfortunate to watch. Yeah, let's move on. Let's move on to Sunday. We got more racing on Sunday. we're Already 40 minutes into this podcast. Uh, Kern, Russell Kern, uh, heartbreak absolute heartbreak for the breakaway at kbk ronan
2: what happened uh yeah current is current slightly new uh parkour new new course it didn't again the choir month which it previously always did so that was sort of interesting to see just how that would affect the race but yesterday coming into the final it was very reminiscent of last year and that you had the NS Grenadiers uh, rider Navarez in, in a small breakaway with a very small advantage over the chasing peloton. Uh, what did differ this year was that, you know, those three riders had escaped from uh, a much larger breakaway this year. Uh, there was probably too many names to name in that initial breakaway, but one of those was Taco Vanderhorn, who managed to make it into the split with Navarez. And also Christophe Laporte uh, made up the final place in that three-man lead group that, that went into the, really into the deep, deep final of, of Kurna. Uh Only had, I watched it again just the last lap last night. They only had 10 seconds with 14 kilometers to go. Uh, but the thing about the Kurna finale is that although they're pretty wide roads uh, and it's absolutely pan flat and you'd imagine that, you know, a, a chasing peloton would easily hunt down a, small breakaway with you know only a 10 second advantage especially given that one of the three riders had been in the break from the start almost uh but the difference is that the the final lap that the corner uses is so it's not overly technical but there's a lot of left and rights through towns uh there's just no real opportunity for a chasing peloton to really get organized uh, and and work together effectively and that's what we've seen unfold yesterday there was uh there was there was a numerous teams chasing behind but they just never really got fully organized they didn't really have the strength and depth you know it was a reduced peloton uh and and what happened was that those three breakaway riders made it all the way into the final kilometer all the way into the last 500 meters i think navarez was the first to get swallowed up by the chasing peloton he sort of when when taco van der horn and and christoph laporte launched a sprint he just wasn't able to match it and and quickly went backwards but it was it was one of those where you just didn't know were they going to make it to the line or was the the bunch sprint going to swallow them up.
0: Just heartbreak. I mean, you have you have to root for the breakaway in that in that instance, right? And in particular, Taco Vanderhorn, who, like you said, was in the morning, like the early morning breakaway. That he'd been in a breakaway for like 190 kilometers or something like that. That was a crazy ride from him. He's also got those like kind of silly narrow bars. Things going on, and so maybe it's just
2: his his aerodynamic profile. I don't know if it's just me or not, but taco Vanderhorn really scares me. Watching him, (laughs) (laughs) he's able to hold that you know sort of arrow position uh, really low on the front, but he can just stay so perfectly stable. His upper body does not move at all, so much so that his his face doesn't move. He has no facial expressions. No matter how much he's suffering, he is always smiling. It's just, it's, it's, it it reminds me of, if you remember Valentino Rossi's helmet, where he had like his own face on the, painted onto his helmet. (laughs) So when he was doing like 200 mile an hour down the road, he had your, his face looking at you and Vanderhorn looks like very similar.
3: (laughs) That would be such a great idea for a custom TT helmet because we've been talking all this oh, time yeah. about how riders' heads are like are faced down; and they can't see anything. Just put their face on the top of the helmet.
2: <laughs> so, uh, I think it's a brilliant plan. But yeah, Vanderhorn, you know, to get to uh, just to go back to his ride, yesterday, he had planned that apparently from November. He said uh, had you know worked on being in condition for Kurna, Had decided not to ride Umlop on Saturday specifically to have fresher legs for Sunday's Kurna. He said it was partly due to the the new course that he felt it was, there was an opportunity for the breakaway. Uh, also, obviously, because he's just so phenomenal at that kind of breakaway attempt. Uh, there are probably very few other riders who could have planned it that way, but uh, he'd even done, uh, he said he'd done aerodynamic testing on Monday and Tuesday of last week just to, f- you know, fine-tune his position and his equipment selection uh, for, for yesterday's race. And he had to come up so short. He, he said himself, like, with I think 100 meters to go, he thought to himself, "Oh, second's not too bad in Kerner," uh, and he ended up <laughs> he ended up tenth.
0: Oh, hey, still top ten. I still can tell you from ten. experience
2: that the still top ten thing does not uh, <laughs> does not <laughs> cut uh, it. I had pretty much the exact same experience where I got caught with 50 meters to go and finished tenth. It was just so close to the finish, and yeah, um, he'll be replaying in his head over and over again if we had only taken this corner faster or if we'd only gone through that roundabout faster or if we'd done this, that or the other, uh, for a long time.
1: Yeah. But once those sprint train, the sprint trains like kind of started moving a little bit, it was,
2: I think that was, there was no way as, as close as it was. I I didn't have that edge of the seat sort of excitement with yesterday's finish because you just felt with 10 seconds, even I think 14 seconds with 1.2 kilometers to go, when the sprint trains even though they were reduced and there wasn't as many sprint trains there when they really got going for the final lead into the the sprint just the increase in pace there alone was going to to swallow i, I, I really didn't expect it to go down to the last you know 100 200 meters but even with the cl- 1.2 kilometers to go i was fairly I, w- I was disheartened but i was fairly sure there was going to be a, a, somebody from the peloton that won
0: yeah i mean the, the, the last Three, four or 500 meters is just so much faster right because the sprint trains go from you know they're chasing at 55k an hour for the last 10k to all of a sudden they're going 65 almost 70k an hour in the last 500 meters and the the breakaway is still going 50 right <laughs> so if the, the 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 gaps just tumble in that last couple hundred meters it's still sad that's very sad. So, so, who won the bike race? Who uh, actually ended up coming by?
2: Uh, the, another guy won it, but that doesn't matter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fabio Jakobsen did take the victory in that one. Uh, it's kind of salvaging quick steps. Uh, weekend, their opening
2: weekend, which uh, according to Patrick Lefevre, they never do particularly well in. I think what they do always do is if if they mess up on Saturday in Umlup, they always win Kurna. Uh, yeah <laughs> that's almost guaranteed and that's actually we we did our staff picks last week for the two races and for I don't, yeah i can't claim that i knew that they were going to miss out on saturday but i had some feeling that saturday wouldn't go to plan and that jacobson would win on sunday i picked brian cook because i like being as wrong as possible oh uh, you think
1: you were wrong i picked wow Van Ar- he wasn't even in the race <laughs>
0: In my defense, Brian Kikar did win two random French races a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, sure, why not? Go for it. That would be fun. Uh, but yeah, Fabio Jakobsen, probably a better call. Now, we're not going to dive into this too far today, but, but you know, we, we are keeping an eye on the sort of Jakobsen, Cavendish, who goes to the Tour de France thing. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting, interesting dynamic there. Maybe both. Maybe both end up going. You no, know, who knows? Probably not, <laughs> but you never know. moving on, we did have another race on Sunday.
1: I think before we um, dive into uh, omni van het hageland there's there's just a notable um notable thing that happened both during omni Pet newsblad or after Omni Newslet and after k b k where Jakobsen and van art both had um very sympathetic and um not emotional, but yeah, statements to say about Ukraine and everything that's going on right now between Russia and Ukraine. They both, well, Van especially said basically like this is, this sport is not that big of a deal. There's a lot bigger things going on in so many words. And so, yeah, I, I feel like obviously we're a cycling podcast and not a political podcast but we've talked about political things and world tragedies before and this seemed like a it could seem like a good moment to kind of slot it into the podcast given the statements by the two winners of the men's races and um that mark pedon the only ukrainian rider in the world tour won the time trial at uh camino what the that new race in spain on sunday who he said we have
0: a, a couple. Of- a couple Ukrainian winners. Yeah. Actually. well, but he's the only he's the only Ukrainian in the world tour. Um Anatoly Budyak uh won a stage of the tour of Rwanda, uh, I think last Thursday as well. So we've we've had a couple sort of feel-good Ukrainian stories over the last couple of days. I don't think we want to spend too much time on it in this particular episode, but we are absolutely keeping an eye on on how cycling responds to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um there's been a number of heartfelt Sort of messages put out you know Paton put his out um Yaroslav popovich anybody who remembers the old postal days will will recognize that name he's still a director at trek Fredo. he put an extremely emotional appeal up on his instagram account uh, we've actually reposted that if you missed it go check out the cycling tips instagram account i think we tweeted it as well um, he's been working with people i think he's based in florence he'd been working with people in poland and elsewhere to to gather up, um, you know, food and clothing and things like that, that, that and and try to bring them to the border because uh, we've got tens of thousands of of refugees headed to both the the Polish border, the Hungarian border, um, and well, they, they they need food and they need shelter and they need they need clothing, um, and they're expecting, frankly, millions probably over the next uh, couple of weeks to make their way across those across those borders. So yeah we, like I said we are keeping a very close eye on on uh, the way that cycling is responding to all of this and you know we, we've we've requested uh, additional we've asked, asked additional questions of the UCI they put out a, a, a statement last week um, that didn't really promise much action but did obviously content, condemn the condemn the invasion um, but I think that that a lot of people are are asking for demanding action on this front. Uh, the IOC just this morning put out a, a statement that um, basically Russians and Russian teams uh, shouldn't be allowed to compete in any IOC-related uh, sport, so that would include cycling. Um, but we haven't seen any any formal action against the Gazprom team, for example, uh, no formal action against any Russian riders. We have heard from some uh, Russian writers who are very anti-war. Um, Pavel Sivikov, uh, who actually has lived in France for basically his entire life, uh, he came out very strongly against the war. Um, but yes, the, the, there's there's lots happening at the moment and, and listeners, rest assured, we are paying very close attention to it and doing quite a bit of reporting at the moment. Um, we're not going to dedicate much of today's podcast to it, but it, it may be something that we that we pulled together as a special episode this week or next week or something like that. Yeah. There, there's, there's a lot going on there. And then the the sort of context around it is, is complicated. Uh, Makarov and his influence on the UCI is certainly something that we're keeping an eye on. Uh, again, the the sort of response to Russian teams and riders is something we're keeping an eye on. Uh, the, in general sports authorities, sports governing bodies have have come out, pretty strongly against against Russia in general um but we haven't seen specifics yet from cycling and from the UCI in particular
1: this so. is a it's a good time to go reread Ian Trilor's dictator the dictator the oligarch and the UCI president article which I can put in the show notes of the episode so you can just scroll down and click to check that out
0: yeah uh We've done a fair amount of reporting, as Zabby is talking about. We've done a fair amount of reporting into sort of related topics in the past. Um, I mean, I think most folks out there will know that Belarus is essentially allied with Russia in this and, and that Belarusian forces appear to be in Ukraine. Um, Belarus is is tied quite closely to some things in cycling over the last couple of years. Uh, so, yeah, go check out that story. Ian's been poking away at this for for a long time, long before – the, the war kicked off. So
3: I will just say I can't think of any any writer in cycling media right now that has such an overlap between geopolitics and cycling. It's pretty amazing what Ian has been doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's he's done some fantastic reporting, and 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 it sets us up well to hopefully inform readers and inform listeners of of sort of the the uh, machinations behind the scenes, uh, that what's the stuff that's going on right now. Over the next couple of weeks, um, but anyway, we'll le- we'll leave it at that. Like I said, I don't want to I don't want to take this this bike racing podcast too far off the rails today, but we will be bringing you additional information in the coming days, coming weeks. We're we'll paying very close attention to it. Abby, we're running out of time, so uh, let's briefly briefly run through Hagelin, uh the sort of finale of the UAE Tour, and. Esports World Championships that happened over the weekend on Zwift.
1: Yes, very quickly. So, Marty ba- Marta Bastianelli won her third race of the season at Omloop um, van het Hageland. It was a really aggressive race with some very interesting tactics that we talked about in Freewheeling. So, if you want to hear more about it, you can hop on over and listen to Freewheeling. But it was a great race for Bastianelli, and I think it's a it's interesting to watch her this year on her. New team, new-ish team UAE, team ADQ, and how it's kind of reviving her as a rider. She's always been quite good, but she did have a couple years there where um, she wasn't winning as much, and already she's got three this year. So a really great race for Bassinelli, uh Emma Norsgaard-Bjerg. I think she changed her last name. I'm not sure. I texted her um, to ask, but she was super aggressive all day, and she ended up second. So really... Looking forward to how she's gonna go the rest of the classics. The UCI Cycling Esports World Championships was on Saturday. The women's race was won by Lod Los Adegist of the Netherlands. She had a very good ride, um, but was also just very smart. The tactics of e-racing I don't quite understand yet, but she did time her effort very well and was able to beat the defending world champion Ashley Moonpacio to the line. Um, and then Jay Vine and Freddie Ovette went one-two in the men's race, Australia won two, and I think they also got fourth um, or maybe fifth, but there was three of them in the top five. And that was, that seemed a little bit more like road racy tactics where there was a break off the front for a really long time and they hit the bottom of the climb together. And then once the Peloton hit the bottom of the climb, uh, the strongest riders in the race were really able to take over and the defending champion, uh, the German Jason Osborne, he had some very interesting tactics where he used the arrow boost power up on the, on one of the flat sections of the climb to like really surge ahead and then was not able to hold it through the last steep section of the climb and was passed by vine and Ovette who both have higher power to weight ratios because bike racing. There you go.
0: Those are the (laughs) other races. I mean, they can't see your thumbs up.
1: Sorry. (laughs) Thumbs up.
0: (laughs) Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Uh, yeah. There we go. All right. That was excellent and rapid. If I let Ronan do it,
1: it would have been like 20 minutes of roundup. So that's why I was like, I should do this and not let Ronan spew 20 minutes worth of. How
2: do you think we've got to an hour so far?
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. We do have one more segment for you today. James has been waiting patiently for an hour. Uh, Today's nerd nuggets. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. We have Nerd a new cervello, maybe two new Cervelo's uh, hiding in plain sight. Ronan and James, what, what, what's going on here?
3: Well, it's funny that you mentioned that I've been sitting here for so long because it dawned, it dawned on me in like the last half hour or so that I'm not really even sure why I'm here considering that Ronan wrote this article anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's true. We just, we just missed you, James. We just missed you. <laughs> you, you missed me sitting here in silence. Mm-hmm. Uh so anyway,
3: yes, uh, we have a new Cervello S5 that has been uh, that has been in the field apparently for quite a bit longer than we realized considering uh, our conversations with Cervelo. Uh, Ronan, I believe in your conversations with them over there that they said something to the effect of we were wondering when someone was going to spot that.
2: <laughs> yep, that's exactly what they said.
3: <laughs> uh, and Abby, if I if I remember correctly, I bet I, I believe you spotted this as a matter of fact.
1: I, so the only reason I'm so excited about this is because I know nothing about bikes, like uh, bikes as a device. I'm like, you, you turn the pedals and it moves forward and I don't know how it works, but, but I was watching both of the races this weekend and I was like, man, that Cervelo looks like it does not look like it normally looks. And especially the front end looks really different. And I typed out a text to Ronan that was like, is this the new Cervelo? And then I was like, actually, I'm not going to send it. I don't want to sound like an idiot. And then the next day he published the story and I thought, oh my gosh. Hey, <laughs> talking to these nerds all the time is finally rubbing off on me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so
0: what what are the changes here? I mean, this is not a whole new bike, right? This appears to be an update, potentially just because the UCI has relaxed a number of essentially like aerodynamic rules uh like the, the the three to one ratio rule and a couple others so they could make the bike more aerodynamic than it used to be right
3: yeah well actually yeah in fact ronan and i uh, ronan had sent me a message on slack and he was like hey is this a new s5 and i was like yeah i don't think so like it might just be a different size but it turns out i was wrong uh ronan you should go ahead and give us the load in on this and then I, I i will add my thoughts on this topic
2: yeah so it's basically a, a new s5 from cervello they have since confirmed that for us Uh, and it's more of an evolution rather than a whole new frame in that it does look remarkably similar to the the current bike and the only real differences are some larger surface areas and some specific points on, on the frame and and those are made possible by the recent relaxation in the uci regulations which basically amalgamated the time trial regulations and the track regulations and the road regulations into one set of regulations meaning that Things that we used to see on time trail bikes, like what are sort of commonly known as compensation triangles, uh, are now permitted on road bikes, whereas previously they weren't. So what that means in you know, sort of plain English is that Cervelo have been able to make the head tube deeper, the bottom bracket area taller, and they've been able to introduce like a sort of bridge between the seat tube and the top tube and basically what all that does is is makes the the frame slightly more aerodynamic um, it sort of smooths out and the airflow over the frame uh, and might only be a marginal sort of improvement but uh, it certainly is made possible by these recently relaxed regulations
3: right because essentially with the compensation triangles what we're talking about is brands now are able to sort of like just fill in the points of the triangle um, whereas they were pretty limited in what they were able to do on the road before.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if you think about, you know, the, the, the junctions between tubes on a time trial bike were typically much larger than the junctions between tubes on a road bike. Uh, and that's effectively what Cervelo have done here is that they've just increased the surface area of those junctions between the, between some of the the, the main tubes in the frame, just to sort of think about the the gap in the middle of a frame, making that, Ever so slightly smaller um, by making the, the junctions bigger.
3: Uh, as, as it turns out, though, this is not the only new Cervello that might be out there, right? Like it seems like we may have a new Caledonia on the works uh, in the works as well.
2: Well, that's what I sort of thought. And just as we started this conversation, I got totally thrown off my train of thought because I got an email through to my inbox which popped up on the screen here. But uh, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second because earlier today we had we got notified on our uh, cycling Tips Twitter by Mark M- M- Genea. I'm totally uh, making a mess of his name and pronouncing it properly there but he will know who he is and he will be mentioned in the uh, article but we were alerted to what looks like a new Caledonia 5 from Cervelo and that, it, it struck me as a bit odd because the Caledonia is such a new bike it's less than two years old um, and while I was fairly certain about the The S5, it took a lot of convincing myself that this might in fact be a new Caledonia. Uh, Ultimately, I decided that I couldn't ignore the differences in the seat tube here, Uh, the more sort of horizontal top tube. A couple of other differences I've I've spotted in the frame, like uh, the seat clamp area, again, has that sort of bridge uh, built into it. Uh, The front forks, from the sort of front-on angle, the forks seem to be a lot wider. Uh, But we've just had... uh, confirmation through from Cervello that although this is another new frame in the works this is not a new Caledonia um so which, no, which makes us wonder what is it then uh so the email says uh, it is not a Caledonia 5 we call FM 151 the soloist so I don't, I'm not sure if it's a return of the soloist or if it's FM 151 must be some internal code I'm thinking but well, uh, yeah,
3: because the, the, the R5 was FM 140, I think. So that's just what, they, that's just what their, their engineering codes are for frames.
2: So what we have here is the return of the soloist, which coincidentally we mentioned earlier in this, or just before we came on the call, I think.
0: Yeah, I love a good soloist. I had an aluminum soloist back in like 2002.
3: That, you, that, like that. that lived so unceremoniously for years out behind your house, outside. <laughs>
0: In the rain and the snow. Well, I didn't have any parts on it. It was, it was dead at that point.
2: <laughs> what I might just say is that I'm going to bail because we have a new Cervello soloist uh, and I would kind of want to write up that story. So I might let you guys face the podcast here and I will be on my way. I think we're done anyway. I think that that is the episode. We
0: hope you enjoyed it. We hope that you keep an eye out for, well, by the time you listen to this, Ronan's story will be up already. So go check out the... The new Cervellas Solis. You heard it here first. And also if you
2: saw it somewhere else. Don't forget to play the game of spot the difference between the old S5 and the new S5. <laughs> All
0: right, and, and to
2: make things
3: extra fun in the write-up, I'm, I'm going to specifically request that Ronan periodically swap the new versus old left to right just so that people can, <laughs> just, people can, can be nice and confused. Which we'll
0: is
1: find
3: which? Out is if, we,
0: if you are as nerdy as Abby.
1: I mean, if I can tell, I feel like anyone can tell. <laughs> Right? But the thing
0: is, Abby, Abby, you never sent
3: the text, so we have no proof.
0: Yeah, it's true. Did you screenshot your attempted text? Was it on? Was it on? Was it on Strava? No. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's podcast. We love having you along for the ride, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the Cycling Tips Podcast. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye.